The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. We would like to continue our consideration of the Kingdom of Heaven parables, and we looked at the parable of the vineyard workers in Matthew chapter 20, and we want to be making our way to Matthew 22, which is a parable of the marriage feast. And uh, at, in going through this, we're almost having somewhat of a overview of the second half of the Gospel of Matthew. So as we kind of continue through here, I want to highlight some events between these two parables that I think set the stage for that. We find that he's on his way to Jerusalem in the latter half of chapter 20. And then at the beginning of Matthew 21 is where Jesus actually enters Jerusalem for the, for the final time. And he rides into the city on the colt and the foal of an ass. And the people put a palm branches down before him and say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. So here in chapter 21, all the way through the end of the book, is actually considering the last week of Jesus' life. And if you actually look at the uh, allocation of the chapters in the Gospels, it's pretty amazing to think that everything we know about Jesus and all the events that are highlighted, and at the end of the Gospel of John, he told us that if he wrote down, or if the Holy Spirit inspired men to write down uh, everything that Jesus did, the world couldn't contain it. Uh, but one-third of all the Gospels, if you look at the chapter divisions, about 33%, about one-third of every chapter in the four Gospels is actually dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life and then the resurrection. And that's really amazing to think about. And that, that tells us how important this is uh, in our redemption story and all the events leading up to that. So Jesus here enters into Jerusalem for the final time and part of the reason why we believe that Jesus had about a three and a half year ministry was because there are at least three, he had been to Jerusalem before, uh, there are at least three Passovers that are noted in scripture that he went to Jerusalem to observe. This is not his first time in Jerusalem, but in this instance, he's, he's entering as the king of the Jews. <laughs> And he's not entering as the king of the Jews on a mighty white horse. Instead, he's, he's entering in humility on the colt and the foal of an ass. And what's the very first thing that he does when he goes into Jerusalem? Well, he goes immediately into the temple and purges the temple. He throws out all those money changers out of the temple. This is actually the second time that he's done that. And, and rebukes them for making what should have been a house of prayer, making it a den of thieves. And then, <clears throat> Jesus having these interactions with the chief priest and the elders who already despised him, uh, but he, he did other events uh, in this last week that only continued the escalation of hatred they had for him and cemented their desire, their desire to kill him. And <clears throat> they ask him, this is in Matthew 21 and verse 23, <clears throat> by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this Authority, And he goes on to say, tell me what, how the baptism of John, by what authority he did that. And they couldn't tell him because 
Well, they could tell him they were just afraid of the people if they said the wrong thing. So they pretty much pleaded the Fifth Amendment and say, well, oh, we just can't tell. Uh, but, but it's in this interaction with the chief priest and the Pharisees and the elders of the people that he gives some more parables that are not specifically attributed to the kingdom of heaven. But we've talked about the Jew and the Gentile dynamic, and this parable of the marriage feast is going to have a very heavy Jew and Gentile application. But we really want to note the parables leading up to this parable, okay, to understand part of the significance of what he's saying in the parable of the marriage feast. So therefore, he tells these uh, chief priests and Pharisees and the elders of the people, he begins in verse 28 of Matthew 21. What think ye? A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. But he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he said, I will go, sir. But he went not. So one person made the wrong decision on the front end, but he repented and he went. The other person lied and didn't do what he said he was going to do. And they said unto him the first, Verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and you believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him, and ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward that ye might believe him. So he's rebuking them for their rejection of Jesus Christ, and not just their rejection of Christ. Now he's going to double down on not just them not believing in Christ. But now he's going to give a parable that describes not just their general animosity toward the son, but their desire to, to kill the son. Okay? Matthew 21, <clears throat> verse 33. Here, another parable. Again, primarily rebuking the chief priests and the Pharisees. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. This is similar language that we find in Isaiah chapter 5 about a vineyard and God granting them a vineyard. It talks about a hedge. It talks about a tower and that in, in Isaiah 5. And there's applications of that that apply to the church. We talked about that last week. But in the immediate context there in Isaiah chapter 5, it's talking about God gave Israel all these blessings in this vineyard, this land that flowed with milk and honey. He gave them all these blessings, and what did they do with it? They squandered it. They squandered it. They didn't uh, take, take care of it in the manner that they ought to. Now, in verse 34, when the, the time of the fruit drew near, the, uh, the owner of the vineyard sent servants to the husbandmen that they may receive of the fruits of it. And then what did the husbandmen do? The husbandman took the servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another, okay? Now, we talked about how Matthew is the Jewish gospel written to the Jews, and that's why some of these parables are specifically rebuking the Jews in the manner that they are. But I believe the lesson he's teaching here is, is very simple. It's very simple, and it's very evident. He's not being very subtle that... I sent my servants, which are the prophets. And how did you treat them? How did you treat the prophets? Not only did you despise them, but in some places you killed them. Let's, let's go to, keep your finger there, but let's go to uh, Luke chapter 11. <clears throat> Luke 
Let's start in verse 46, Luke eleven forty-six. 46. Now, he, here he's rebuking some lawyers, some uh, experts in the Mosaic law, so to say, that are right in the same group as the chief priests and the Pharisees. Beginning in verse 46. Woe unto you also, ye lawyers, for you laid men with burdens grievous to be born, Ye yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe unto you, for you build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly ye bear witness that ye allow the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and ye build their sepulchres. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles. So it's not just about the Old Testament, okay? Now, that's how they treated the Old Testament, and he's going to highlight that. But it's not just about the Old Testament prophets. I'm sending you New Testament apostles, too. And they treated them the exact same way that their forefathers treated the prophets. I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you that it shall be required of this generation. And we're going to find uh, in these prophecies Jesus prophesying of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., which is one of the most significant prophetic events in all of the Bible. It's shadowed in the Old Testament. Jesus talked about it many times. He's, he unequivocally talks about it in these parables. And God was going to rain down judgment because of not just their casual ignoring, uh, not just their uh, not accepting the message of the prophets and the apostles, but downright killing them, killing them. And then he says, Woe unto you lawyers, verse 52, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye enter not in yourselves, speaking of the kingdom, and them that were entering in, ye hindered. Now this is a great example of why we have to put the kingdom of God in the right context, right? Because if it would be terrifying to think that these wicked men, that there were people that were wanting to enter into heaven, that were wanting to enter into eternal life, but because of their wickedness, they hindered them from entering in. That's, that's what Jesus said, that these men were preventing people from experiencing the blessings of the kingdom of God. And if that's eternal life in heaven, boy, isn't that horrible to think that wicked men could stop up the doors of heaven? <laughs> well, we know that's not true, right? There's no possibility that any of God's children are ever going to be separated, but it's, it's evident, both in this time and, and even, even today as well, certainly in other countries where there's governmental uh, persecution, spiritual wickedness in high places, that there are laws and wicked men in positions of authority that make it very, very difficult to press into the kingdom. And praise God that we've been protected with First Amendment rights in America where we don't, we don't necessarily have that problem. But they were preventing some of God's children that desire to, to press into the kingdom and to follow Jesus Christ because of a fear. You know, think about, uh, what was that, the, uh, the blind man in, um, in John chapter 9 that they went to his parents 
and they were afraid to tell the truth because they were afraid of being cast out of the synagogue, right? They were afraid of doing that. Well, there's a lot of people like that. They were just terrified of being cast out of the synagogue, and because of that, they didn't follow Jesus as sincerely and as devoutly as they should have. But God says, I sent prophets to you. I sent servants to receive fruit. I mean, he built a vineyard. He planted a vineyard. And God expects fruit from his vineyard, right? So back in Matthew 21, he sends uh, servants to receive fruit of the vineyard. And there there weren't any fruits because they were being disobedient and they were being sinful and worshiping false gods. So then he says, and then he sends more servants, verse 36. And he sent other servants, even more than the first time. And they did unto them likewise. They beat them and they killed them and they stoned them. And last of all, he said unto them, I will send my son, for they will reverence my son. I mean, this is a pretty clear parable, isn't it? He's talking about Jesus. Clearly that uh, I've sent my prophets, and you've rejected my prophets. And not only have you rejected my prophets, you've killed my prophets. So so when I send my son, clearly you're going to have more reverence and respect for my son than you did the prophets. What, What did they do? What did they do? And it, it, this tells you just the wickedness of man's nature apart from the Spirit of God because this is their, this is their, lo- their logical reasoning in their wicked, depraved state. The husbandmen, they saw the son, and instead of them saying, well, maybe we need to... Uh, I know we beat the previous ones and we killed them. Uh, maybe we don't need to be as disrespectful. I mean, we may not kill him, you know. Maybe we'll just beat him. Maybe we'll just be, be rude to him. Instead, their mindset is, this is the, again, portraying the mindset of the chief priests and the Pharisees. The husbandmen saw the son, and they said, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. They wanted to. They, they desired to kill him. Why? Because the reality is, he was coming saying, I'm king of the Jews. I am the authority. And they said, no, 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 no. We don't want to give up that authority. We want to make sure that we still have this control and this power over the people. So they say, we want to kill him. And then they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. And when the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard cometh, what will he do (laughs) unto the husband? And it's funny how um, I I remember this when uh, David had sinned with Bathsheba and Nathan comes and gives this parable about... Uh, this poor man that had a one little ewe lamb and the rich man that had all these flocks. And then David is just outraged when he hears this parable. You know, I'm going to go find this man. That is just unjust that he did it. And he didn't realize that he was writing his own condemnation. He didn't didn't get it in the moment. And it's funny how they don't get it either. Verse 41, he will miserably, this is the condemnation that that they're, they're heaping upon themselves, right? They can say that is totally unfair that people would not only kill servants, but they would kill the son of the owner? I can't believe that you would do that. So then they are writing their own condemnation. Even they can see how unfair this is. And they say, this this Lord of the vineyard, he will miserably destroy these wicked men. And he will let... And it's funny how they didn't realize what they were saying. Not only are you going to destroy the vineyard, but also you're going to let it out to other husbandmen. Let's talk about the Gentiles, right? They will let it out to other husbandmen which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. And guess what? They were exactly right. <laughs> they were exactly right. They saw how unfair that was. 
There should be fruits coming out of this vineyard. And not only it's one thing to say, hey, you're fired. We're going to hire somebody else. But then uh, when it came time for, uh, you know, annual review time, uh, instead of saying, oh, well, we didn't have anything. We're sorry. They felt like the best way uh, to handle this was to kill the messenger. Well, anyone that, run, that runs a business, I'm not going to keep employed with people that keep killing my <laughs> My servants and my son, right? So what am I going to do? I'm going to fire all of them and I'm hiring a whole new workforce. <laughs> when they had enough sense to see this. And that's exactly what God did. That's exactly what God did. These Jews rejected Jesus. They killed the son. They killed Jesus. And then he said, all right, all right. I'm going to primarily, now there were still Jews in the kingdom, right? But I'm going to primarily let this vineyard out to the Gentiles. And then he says in verse 42, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This is talking about Jesus. The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Whoso shall fall on this stone shall be broken, and whomsoever it shall fall, it shall grind him to powder. And then the chief priests, verse 45, and the Pharisees, they heard these parables. They perceived that he spake of them. <laughs> well, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? It's pretty obvious that he's talking about them. And they finally at least got that. And they sought to lay hands on him, and they would have killed him right then. But they feared the multitude because the people saw him as a problem. Those same people that uh, probably a day or two before um, had been laying down palms before him, right? And saying, blessed is, is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Well, we don't want to make everyone in Jerusalem mad that was just laying down, uh, laying down those palms before him and professing him as the king of the Jews. Uh, but things escalated later in the week to where they were now willing to do that because of their hatred of Christ just built. Okay, now... The point there was is that these chief priests and Pharisees, Jesus is just chewing them out, okay? And he is condemning them for what will end up being their rejection of Jesus, their killing of Jesus. And he tells them in these parables leading up to the marriage feast, I'm primarily, now there were, there were certainly Jews in the kingdom, right? We know the apostles. We know early in the book of Acts, that church in Jerusalem, we see... 3,000 people added, 5,000 men added, multitudes added. I mean, there could have been 20,000 members of the Church of Jerusalem easy in, uh, by the time Acts chapter 6 rolls around. But primarily, though, primarily, the kingdom is not going to be Jewish-centered. It's going to be Gentile-centered from this point forward um, because of their rejection of Jesus. So, <clears throat> Matthew chapter 22 parable of the marriage feast. Jesus answered and said unto them again by parables. Okay? So he's primarily rebuking these rulers of the people. The kingdom of heaven is like unto. The kingdom of heaven is like unto, which is pointing us toward the church. But this application, there are lessons we can glean from this, but this application is primarily talking about the, the first century kingdom of heaven, if you let me put it like that. Uh, because this Jew and this Gentile dynamic, God grafting in the Gentiles and removing the blessings that the 
Jewish people used to have and the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, this is primarily speaking of the first century kingdom of heaven <clears throat> and the first century church. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which had a marriage for his son. This, this parable is pretty obvious too, isn't it? A king that had a marriage for his son. That's Jesus. And sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. You remember when, uh, when Jesus initially began his ministry? He said, look, don't go preach to everybody. Go preach <clears throat> to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. <clears throat> During Jesus' ministry, and then in the early days, uh, really up to the stoning of Stephen, really. Uh, I think that aligns with the prophecy of the 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9, a three and a half year period of Jesus' ministry, a primary three and a half year period uh, of the apostles' ministry. But when they stoned Stephen, when they stoned Stephen, and he gave them this, this long history, which is just amazing uh, the way they reacted to that, by the way. Um, he gave them, which is a great Old Testament summary. You go read Acts chapter 7. His, ser his uh, sermon uh, in Acts chapter 7 there is a great overview of the Old Testament. But the theme of it is not just general history. The theme of it is you have rejected the prophets and you have rejected Lord at the Lord at every single turn. <laughs> I mean, you look at the time of the judges, you look at the time of the kingdom, you look at every single time, and then all the way back to the original uh, Israelites who, who didn't go into the kingdom, uh, didn't go into the promised land, and were killed at every single turn. All you've done is rejected the Lord at every single turn. All you've done is killed his prophets, and now you've killed his son. And what was their response to the preaching of Stephen? Was their response to the preaching of Stephen like, like the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost where they were pricked in the heart and they said, man, we've messed up. What, what do we need to do? Repent and be baptized. What was their response to the scathing rebuke of Stephen? They were cut to the heart, and they killed the messenger again. They killed the messenger again. And that was the, the plumb line had been dropped. The Lord said, I, I've been, I've been long-suffering with you. And finally, you have killed the last of the prophets. You've killed Stephen, and now we are moving to the Gentiles. And that's when the tone and, and the focus of the Acts of the Apostles changes, doesn't it? It changes after that. Because it is now a Gentile focus when they chose to kill Stephen. So, um, the servants that were, uh, the servants called them, they were been to the wedding, and they would not come. They would not come. And again, he sent forth other servants. You know, God's, God's long-suffering. He's, he's going to give us a space for repentance. And he certainly did for the Jews. Tell them which are bidden, behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. You know, even if you, <laughs> that sounds like a pretty good spread to me. Uh, I mean, even if you weren't the biggest fan of, you know, the person that's getting married, I mean, why not go get some good free food, right? I mean, just being practical, you'd be like, well, you know what, I, I guess we'll go. But instead, they, they rejected the, the servants and I think this distinction is important. Verse 5. One group, the majority, they made light of it and went their way, one to his farm and another to his merchandise. The majority of the people didn't want to kill Jesus. Let's go ahead and read verse 6. But the remnant, okay, this is talking about the, the chief priests and the Pharisees and all these wicked rulers. The remnant took the servants 
and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But that was not the majority. That was not the majority. Remember, Jesus' ministry, it says the common people heard him gladly. The common people heard him gladly. Um, he, he was a man of the people. Why? Because he looked like everybody else. Uh, I mean, uh, he had no form nor comeliness that we should desire him. He looked like everybody else. And he had a, a beautiful message that was much better than the legalistic message that the Jews and the, I mean, that the Pharisees and the chief priests were bringing. But even though the common people heard him gladly, there was a time where he had a really big following. I think John 6 is a good example. You know, he fed the 5,000 people, but they were following for the wrong reasons. You know, they, they wanted the, uh, the loaves and the fishes. But then he kind of started preaching the, the doctrines of grace and God's sovereignty and in both salvation and other areas there in John chapter 6. And by the end of it, they were like, you know what? These are hard sayings. I think we're just going to go back to the house. The majority of people didn't want to kill Jesus. They just, they kind of made light of it. They, 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 he was a spectacle for a little bit, you know. John the Baptist was a spectacle for a little bit. I mean, this guy, <laughs> I mean, you think about it, you know, him being the forerunner of Jesus, and they're just kind of going about their going about their daily life and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden you hear about this guy who's dressed really weird, who has this really weird diet, that's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he's dumping people in water. I mean, that's <laughs> I mean that that was not routine <laughs> in first century Judea. So a lot of people went out and said, Let's, let's go see what this guy's all about. They were interested. And Jesus says that a little bit later. Uh, I think that's in Matthew 11. He said, what did you go out to see? What did you go out to? Most people were just going out because it was the novelty. I mean, there, there's this, <laughs> this weirdly dressed uh, caveman guy who's, who's saying weird things and dumping people in water for some reason. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, we want to go check this out because this is, this is, you know, the, the buzz in the community. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a sense in which Jesus was just a novelty for some people. Wait a minute, this guy's healing people? He's feeding 5,000? I mean, all these amazing things just kind of started spiraling in the community, and you started hearing about this, and a lot of them just went out to see the novelty. But they, they didn't have a true desire for Jesus. But then once, they, once the, the, the shine of the novelty wore off, they just went back home, and they went back home to their, to their merchandise and to their farm, Right? That was the majority of people. But then there were some people, which was a remnant. I mean, it wasn't the majority. It was a small remnant of people that they hated Jesus. They hated Jesus. The majority of people didn't hate Jesus. But this, the, the centralization of power in the chief priest and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, especially the high priest, Caiaphas and Annas, they hated Jesus. But I think it's worth noting that the remnant are those who took the servants and killed them. Not the, not the majority, the remnant, which was the ru wicked rulers, okay? Now, how do you think the king is going to respond to this, right? The king, therefore, heard and was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. That's not subtle. That's not subtle, let it. That's the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and I want you to understand, God is not the author of sin. God does not, in the Old Testament, at the first destruction of Jerusalem, God did not decree or command Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Jerusalem, but he did remove his providential hedge, and he suffered Nebuchadnezzar to do what was in his, in his heart already to do for the purposes of his judgment. And I want you to notice how the Lord, now he, did, he didn't, 
calls and work in the heart of first Nebuchadnezzar and then later in Titus. He didn't cause that, but I want you to don't miss the language. He says, I am sending my armies. He says, I will send, the king will send his armies and I will destroy those murderers and I will burn up their city. God was sending that judgment and he sent that judgment by removing his hedge and allowing wicked people to do what they naturally do which is destruction and mayhem and murder. But I want you to notice, God sent this judgment. Titus just didn't decide, because there's no way that he could have took the city of Jerusalem if God's providential hedge was still around those people. No way, no possibility. God suffered that to happen because of perpetual disobedience, perpetual rejection of the prophets, and then ultimately rejection of Jesus Christ. So, Jesus, I mean, God says... I am going to send my armies and I'm going to destroy those people and I am going to burn up their city. That's the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by Titus, okay, and the Roman armies. Now, he says to his servants, the wedding is ready. You know, we still have a marriage feast. Aren't you, don't you love the song that we sing? Come and dine. Come and dine. The master calleth. Come and dine. And I don't understand why those Jews would want to reject that. But they did. So then, the wedding is still ready. The, the feast in the Father's house is still ready. The blessings of the kingdom of heaven are still right there. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all, as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. Um, I, I wanted to highlight this verse uh, earlier. Acts chapter 13. Um, now Paul, very interesting dynamic that Paul was the um, apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was technically the apostle to the circumcision. But Paul, we find that expressed in Romans chapter 10, how he had this, this desire for his kindred. He had, he had uh, a desire to have the Jews come to the knowledge of the truth. So therefore, he understood that God had called him to be primarily the apostle to the Gentiles, but in every city that he went to, the first place he always went to was the synagogue. He went to go preach to the Jews, first of all. And they, they had just begun their... Um, they had just begun this first missionary journey with him and Barnabas, and they follow the same pattern. They go into the synagogue, and I want you to notice the distinction here. Um, verse 45, Acts 13. When the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spoke against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, right? The Jews had the first right of refusal, okay? It was necessary for it to have been spoken to you first. And seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourself unworthy of everlasting life. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean that every single Jew 
is going to hell, right? But the primary disposition, just like when it says uh, Jesus came unto his own, his own received him not. Well, obviously there are people that received him, right? But the general disposition was that they rejected him. The general disposition of the Jews was to reject the gospel. And he said, look, you've done this to yourself. You judge yourself unworthy of everlasting life. That doesn't mean that it's by your rejection that you're going to hell. It just means that you're manifesting the condition of your heart already. Okay? And he said, now we're turning to the Gentile. Now I want you to notice the, the stark contrast between the way that the Jews receive the gospel okay, and then the way that the Gentiles heard the gospel. Actually, I should have backed up to verse 42. The Jews were going out of the synagogue and the Gentiles besought that these things might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Okay, So they both heard the same thing. Right? They both heard the same thing. The Jews got envious and tried to persecute the preacher. And the Gentiles said, this is the best thing that we have ever heard. Can you come preach the same thing again next week? <laughs> you see the difference between the, 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 uh, the, the response between the Jews and the Gentiles? And then it's clarified even further in verse 47. And so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be a salvation of the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, and they glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. See, that is a great um, just line in the sand, one of those line in the sands examples, that you know what, not only in the general sense, have I given, as I given Jerusalem and the Jews a chance to repent, and now the focus is going to be primarily, uh, primarily Gentile. But God, even in every single city that He went to establish the church, Paul, by the direction of the Spirit, went to the Jews first. Every time he went to the Jews first, and how did the Jews respond? They said, hey, "We're not interested. We're not interested." But the Gentiles, boy, they received it gladly. Right? They were excited about it. Okay, back in Matthew 22. Now, this is talking about the Gentiles. We're inviting everyone into the kingdom, both good and bad. The people that you may perceive in your mind, particularly these Jews, you may view them like the, the publicans and the harlots. You may view them as the, the heathen, by the way, when you read the heathen in the New Testament. That's primarily talking about the Gentiles. That, that's, the, that's the Jewish... Um, probably a slur really if we're being honest it was probably a Jewish slur uh, of the Gentiles and that's who God was bringing in the publicans the harlots um, the heathen people that Jews uh, probably weren't the biggest fans of and then they bring them into the kingdom so the Gentiles have now been grafted in and praise God for that right because we're Gentiles <laughs> just in case you didn't know it I don't know if I've defined my terms uh, but essentially, Gentiles are everybody that's not a Jew. And I'm pretty confident everyone in here is not a Jew. Okay, So, so we're Gentiles. We're Gentiles. We're, we're those that have been grafted into the kingdom. Aren't you glad that the, that the way that God chose to expand his kingdom, he gives this, uh, this geographical pattern, if you will, in Acts chapter 1. He said, first of all, you're going to go to Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then into the uttermost parts of the earth. Well... We wouldn't know anything about this if it would have stopped in Jerusalem, right? Aren't you glad that God expanded the gospel in the way that he did? That we would know about it and it made its way across oceans, made its way 
uh, across the Atlantic Ocean over here to America. And now we have the privilege of worshiping God in spirit and in truth based on our knowledge of the gospel here today as well that we've been grafted in. We're part of those Gentiles that have been grafted in. So the Gentiles have been brought into the kingdom. And praise God for that <clears throat> because we are certainly among those, those Gentiles. But... <clears throat> which should have been evident from the Jews, to whom much is given, much is required. Right? To whom much is given, much is required. And then when somebody comes in, he did not have on the appropriate garment when he attended a wedding. Okay, so first of all, weddings are a very happy occasion. Right? Very happy occasion. And not everyone wears a, a suit to a wedding per se, but you're also not going to wear gym shorts. You know, it would be inappropriate for you to uh, wear ugly clothing to a wedding. Like, that would be inappropriate. I mean, the father of the bride, for example. Uh, do you, how do you think the father of the bride in weddings today, how do you think that he would feel if someone just came in straight from uh, the fields that was a farmer and was dirty and nasty? How do you think the father of the bride would, he may have a conversation with that person and say, you know what, you need to go home and clean up, right? Um... Well, our righteousnesses are described as what? In Isaiah 64 and verse 6, right? Filthy rags, filthy rags. Uh, I have some old camouflage pants and a uh, painted T-shirt that I primarily mow and do all my yard work in. And they're, they're, they're pretty nasty, you know, because that's, that's my yard work clothes. Well, it would be very inappropriate for me to show up to a wedding of someone that I'm, I'm supposed to be... You know, you don't have to be there. There's only there's only three people that have to be there for somebody to get married, right? You don't have to be there to cement the deal. No, you're just showing respect and love to the people that are getting married, right? Well, how respectful is it for you to show up to somebody's wedding in like your your filthy rags, dirty yard club? That's it. That's disrespectful, isn't it? That would be disrespectful to. Uh, to the people, and again, think about today how how just sticking out like a sore thumb that would be. You know, we have all these pictures, and we have wedding videos, and all this stuff, and you have everyone dressed appropriately, and then you have this someone who's just they didn't they didn't take a shower before they came, and it looks like they just left the field, and just dirty and nasty. I mean, that would stick out like a sore thumb. And how embarrassing would that be when you look back at those photos, right? The point is. That if you're going to go to a to a wedding, even an hour, even an hour understanding, there's an appropriate attire for the right place and the right time at a wedding, right? I mean, you don't you don't show up looking looking nasty. You don't you don't show up with ugly clothes, right? No, you you out of respect for them, put on the best that you have to honor and respect the people that are getting married. And then the uh, the king saw one of the guests which had not on a wedding garment. And he said unto him, friend. Now let's make sure we understand. This, this is some heavy language, but this is not talking about somebody being cast into hell, right? This is talking about the kingdom of heaven. This is talking about the church. There's this idea in Christianity today, well, just come as you are, right? Just, just come as you are. And I, I get the, the principle of kind of what you're saying when you, when you say that, right? You're saying that everyone's welcome in the kingdom. And I agree with that. I mean, they are. I mean, uh, God, Christ came to save sinners, not just whitewashed sinners. I mean, he came, he came to save sinners, right? 
And the people who really need the gospel and who really need the church, they're sinners. Now, that's who really need the gospel. But the, this idea in Christianity that you just kind of come as you are, well, we need to invite people to come as they are, but understand there are some change of attire that has to happen for you to really press into the kingdom. I mean, I mean, uh, when John was baptizing, he said, look, you got to bring forth fruits meat for repentance. You can't be walking around in filthy rags all the time uh, in living in sin. You're going to have to show some changes of your attire, right? Your, your location has changed, and you need to show respect for that. You need to put on the appropriate garments. You need to put on the appropriate garments in the appropriate setting. And God has given us the garments of salvation. Let's go to uh, <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61 and in verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. And I love how this is described as his garments that he's put on us, right? Um, we don't have salvation in and of ourselves, but he closed us, closed us. He clothed us with the garments of his salvation. And he hath covered me with a robe of righteousness. Well, we don't have any righteousness. He gave us a robe of his righteousness, right? As the bridegroom decketh herself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. <clears throat> so it's not just that in this application, it's not just that this person showed up without a wedding garment. It's that they have a wedding garment that they made a decision to not put on, right? Uh, we have all been given the garments of salvation, and it's up to us to put on those garments of salvation. And it, just as a side note, um, we talk about come as you are. Uh, it's up to you, at the level of which you feel comfortable uh, of attending public worship. I'm not going to say that jeans are wrong. I'm not going to say that shorts are always wrong, but I'll tell you from my experience, um, I, when I began my career, I was working for a public accounting firm, and I was required to wear a tie every day. And I preferred to not wear a tie, so therefore I was just wearing a golf shirt to church. And then there came a time over uh, a few sermons that I heard that I became convicted that I was dressing down for church. Okay, And that's just my personal experience, but I became very convicted about that. Because I, it was very evident to me that I was dressing down for church. So then I started wearing a suit and a tie, and, and then lo and behold, everyone wanted to shove me in the pulpit. Because if you wear it, be careful. I'll, I'll just give you the disclaimer right now. If you, if you go from dressing normal to start wearing a suit and a tie, they're going to try to shove you in the pulpit, because they did for me. Now, it wouldn't until a couple years later until I actually started preaching. Uh, but <laughs> that, that is a disclaimer, you know, but it's up to you. It's up to you to determine where that level is. But I hope that you understand that you want to give the Lord your best, right? Give the Lord your best. And we should be willing to do that. But I'll tell you what's more important than you wearing, you know, uh, some dress code or whatever perceived dress code of the church you may think is appropriate. Um, that's up between you and your conscience. You need to give the Lord best you can. Uh, and that's between you and your conscience. But what's more important is you putting on the garments of salvation and the robe of righteousness and living in a godly way on a day-in, day-out basis. That's what's important, all right? And uh, I want to highlight this uh, from Colossians chapter 3. I spoke on this 
in uh, Texas a while back, and I, I like the imagery here of putting off and putting on. Putting off and putting on. <clears throat> this is in Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. Verse 8, But now ye also put off these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing you have put off the old man, but now put on the new man. Okay? Put off the old man, put on the new man, which is renewed in righteous, which is renewed in knowledge, after the image of him that created him. And this is an interesting kind of connection here. Then, right after that, he says, where there is neither Jew nor Greek, right? Uh, or Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, skithin, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, think about this in a discipleship sense. The Lord expects, I mean, we're here in the kingdom of heaven, the Lord expects us to serve him with an appropriate attire, right? And the Lord is not going to be pleased. I want you to think how, if you, if you just imagine in your mind the type of clothing in this pure, lovely setting of a, of, a, of a marriage, I want you to think about how hideous this type of clothing would be in that setting for someone to show up with fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication. I mean, that's inappropriate, isn't it? That is, that is inappropriate in, in a marriage setting. Well, I mean, the, the, the bride wears a white dress in, in uh, portraying purity, right? That, that type of sin is inappropriate in the marriage feast. So therefore, what do you do? Put it off. Put it off and put on the garments that you already have. What are those garments? Put off the sinful garments. Put on the garments you already have. And what are those garments? Put on, therefore, as the elect of God. These should be the garments that identify the elect of God, the God's children. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies. You know, this is the kind of garment that the king is going to be happy to see his, his guest to his son's marriage dressed in, right? This is what's going to make him happy. And honoring to the marriage participants that you are trying to respect. <clears throat> Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do you. And above all these things, above all these things, you know, he talks about in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, that you know what, I can have all these spiritual gifts, I can speak with the tongues of men and of angels, uh, and you can have all these garments that look good, but if they don't have charity, they're, they're meaningless. They're null and void, right? And he said, above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. You see, that's the kind of, um, that's the kind of garments that the Lord is happy with. So going back to Matthew 22, I want to first note that before this man is rebuked, isn't it good to know, again, we're not talking about heaven and hell right here. We're talking about honoring the Lord and the kingdom of heaven. 
before he rebukes them and casts him into darkness, what does he call him first? He calls him a friend. He calls him a friend. I, I invited you to my to my wedding, and I'm and I'm happy you came. You should just dress right now. <laughs> you should have dressed right. He calls him a friend. He calls him a friend. But the Lord will not supplement holiness. I mean, he will not put up with unrighteousness in his presence. So friend, he's a friend. How camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. I mean, he didn't have a leg to stand on, right? He, 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 he knew he'd messed up. He was speechless. And then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, that's heavy language, isn't it? That's heavy language. Uh, but that's not, don't be concerned that that's talking about God casting somebody in, in the eternal lake of fire. But there have been times, such as Jonah, where he was living in rebellion to God, and he cried out of the belly of hell, right? He felt to be in weeping and gnashing of teeth down there in the, in the whale's belly, didn't he? Why? Because he sure didn't put on the right garments. <laughs> he disobeyed God. The Lord judged him for it, and not only was he physically being afflicted, being down in that whale's belly, but he obviously was being afflicted by the Spirit of God as well, convicting him, and that's the type of, you know, judgment is not even the right word because it's, it's, it's happening to his friend. This is chastisement. This is evidence that God loves you. This is evidence that we are children of God. We're, we're friends. We're, we're friends of the king. But God sends us that conviction and chastisement to bring us to repentance so now we can show back up and put on the right clothes. Put on the right clothes. And he doesn't expound on this, but I believe that we can easily say that the king would happily welcome him right back to the wedding feast if he just put on the right clothes. <laughs> but God's going to convict you to show you what you did was inappropriate. You need to repent, go put on the right clothes, and he's going to welcome you right back to the feast, right? He's going to welcome you right back. You just have to dress appropriately. You have to dress appropriately. And then he summarizes this in verse 14. The same phrase that concluded the uh, parable of the vineyard workers. Many are called, but few chosen. Now, this is not talking about election, right? Because this is not a heaven and hell parable. Same phrase at the conclusion of the parable of the vineyard workers. Many are called. You know, there, there are a lot of people that, that were invited to this wedding, Right? There were a lot of people that were invited. And there were some people that were the friend of the king. They were invited, but they didn't act appropriately, and they had to be sent home for a little bit. But this word chosen means the best of its class or a kind that should be imitated. So uh, we are familiar with the phrase uh, in, in our culture. That is choice beef, right? It's, it's something that's choice. It's the best. It's been tested. It's been verified to be the best, and it's been manifested publicly and, and sealed that this is the best of its kind as it's been evaluated. And what is a... Uh, would you say that man that, that showed up with inappropriate garments, would you say that he 
was tested and verified to be the best of his class? Well, no, he wasn't, right? Not everyone that is called, not everyone that even shows up is going to manifest publicly that they are the best and the the chosen. And it's just a reality that God has always had a righteous remnant. I mean, there's going to be a multitude without, without number in heaven. But those that are going to be diligent to press into the kingdom, those that are going to make a, a committed focus every day to make sure I dress appropriately to honor the king, those are not going to be the majority. It's not going to be a majority. It's going to be a remnant. It's going to be a remnant. Many are called. Many are called. But few are going to exhibit a quality of discipleship that is, that is to be imitated. I mean, that, that's the type of choice example that he's describing right there. And I just want to remind us <clears throat> that to whom much is given, much is required, right? How much was given to the Jews? You know, he talks about this in Romans. He's like, a com- we're committed unto them, the oracles of God. I mean, they had everything at their disposal, didn't they? The Jews should have, if it wasn't for maybe some corrupt leaders and, and other factors, as soon as, they should have been diligent like those wise men. The wise men were actually going and looking for the Messiah. The Jews had everything at their disposal where they shouldn't have rejected him. They should have widely accepted him. They had everything at their disposal to do that. But what did they do? They failed. They messed up. That, to whom much is given, much is required. And I dare say that no, no more has ever been given to any group of God's people in the history of the world than Christians and disciples of Christ in America. No church has ever had First Amendment protections. And the reality is, if we're being honest, we've squandered it. We've squandered it. To whom much is given, much is required. And then this is a a lot bigger topic, and I, I don't have all the knowledge to speak to this, but it's amazing what God's doing in Africa. Amazing what God's doing in Africa. And to whom much is given, much is required. And they don't have some of the privileges that we have in America. And I think we've squandered it. I think we've squandered it, and I think that the Lord has allowed blessings. And that, that's the history. If you look at the map of the church, again, this is a lot bigger. I, got, I, I need to close, but... But this is a lot bigger topic. If you look at the map of the church, it always shined very brightly in different areas, and then it eventually extinguished. You follow the, pat- the pattern. The Middle East, it went up to Europe, how- and it was shining so brightly in England for a period of time, right? It was shining so brightly in America for a period of time, and now it, it shined, and you follow the map. It shined here, shined here, and then you wait a couple hundred years, and then the light extinguishes. You follow the same map. And we've been given so much in America. And boy, I think that to the world, we've shined very brightly for a hundred years. But it sure seems to me like the light is diminishing. And what does God do? (laughs) If we don't use what we've been given, he's going to give it to some people that will use it. That's what God's doing in Africa. That's what God's doing in other areas. We have not been faithful with what God has given us to the degree that we should have and what God's doing. He's giving those privileges primarily to other people. Now, don't be too discouraged. God can still bless us in the middle of that. But as a whole, if we're being honest, we have to say that America, the Christian Americans and the Primitive Baptist Church in America has not utilized what we have been given 
to the degree that we should have. And when God came and inspected our fruits, I don't, I don't think we're killing prophets, but um, I don't think that he's as honored as he should have been with the fruits that we've borne. So what does God do? His pattern has always been, I'm going to give it to the people that are going to use it. That's the, that's the parable of the talents, isn't it? One person went and hit it in the ground, and then many people would say, well, how are you going to give that one talent to the person who's already got ten talents? Why? Because he's using what I've given him faithfully, and I'm going to give more to people that use it faithfully. <clears throat> many are called, but few chosen. And I hope that we can learn appropriate lessons uh, from the failures of the Jews. And we can't, you know, we inherited the kingdom. We inherited the kingdom from our forefathers. But I hope that instead of being the last generation of the Jews that dropped the ball, that's what happened. I mean, the Jews, boy, they'd messed up. They'd messed up for centuries. That's all. That's the only thing they ever did was mess up. But you know what? God gave them a grand opportunity when Jesus showed up. And you know what? It wasn't their forefathers who rejected Jesus. They couldn't blame it on Daddy. They couldn't blame it on them. They had a grand opportunity, and unfortunately, they squandered it. And we can't control what was, what was handed to us, and we can't fully change the mistakes of people possibly that went before us. But what we can do is use what we have been given as faithfully as we can to where the Lord would be honored by it because I sure don't want to be. There was a generation of the Jews that had the opportunity to change the entire trajectory of their lineage. They had an opportunity to do that. And Lord forbid, if this is the generation where the primitive Baptist light is extinguished instead of growing brighter. This should be the generation. This should be the generation because God's given us an opportunity. This should be the generation that our light should shine brighter. Lord forbid that our light continues to diminish. God's given us that opportunity. And I pray that God, by His grace, would bless us to faithfully honor Him with what we've been given. Because we've been given so much. And we want to honor the Lord in what we've been entrusted with. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.